Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. For those of you who have kids who are going on the youth excursion, um, they're going to pray. Does anybody really know the exact time? Thank you. Okay, so you are free to get up and wander uh, and, and go out there and pray for your children. If they are going, even if, if you want to just go out and pray for them, uh, pray for other, other people's children. That's the, the way it's going to be. So we're in Proverbs chapter 19. And uh, we are screaming right along if you'd like to join us there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to be in your presence, to find, Father, that you speak to us through the simplest of language and that you make the complicated language simple. So, Father, we thank you today that we can trust what your word says because you have made it alive. It's living. It's active. It separates inside of us the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Proverbs 19, if you want to just, you know, hopefully you're reading along with us. If you're not, it's okay, but we would like you to read a proverb a day. Get in the habit of that. It probably doesn't take more than about five minutes to to do that. And I know all of you are insanely busy and that that you wonder how to, to squeeze everything in that a, a church might expect you to do. And uh, we're not asking you to do much in that, but we would like you to, to read Proverbs on a pretty regular basis. Let's begin reading in, in chapter 19 at verse 2, where, again, these are all attributed to Solomon. There's about 10 chapters in the middle here that are, that are attributed solely to Solomon. Not all of them are. I'm not exactly sure how they know those things. But historically, um, that's what they say. And I'm just going to take their word for it. I don't exactly know what difference it makes who wrote, who wrote it. If the Holy Spirit is involved, then God did. And so we're good to go, right? And so it doesn't really make any difference if we actually know that. It's just something for people with, with uh, college degrees to argue about and give reason for why they're better. Anyway, in verse number two, it says, Also... It is not good for a soul to be without knowledge. Now, remember that when we process living, that we are a three-part being. You have a body. That body is the functional part of you. It's what walks you. And that's when Paul said, well, while we walk in the flesh, you have no other choice other than to use your flesh to motivate yourself from point A to point B, unless you figure out how to get translated. That would be cool, but I don't know that, I, that anybody's figured that one out yet. So you're going to have to have a body. That body has at times an unrepentant carnal attitude. Now remember, the only way for it to have that is for you to accept the fact that your flesh has some level of rule over you which means those desires and appetites that your soul might have become, become motivating in your flesh. You would never overeat if you didn't pick up the fork. Amen. <laughs> you say, yes, I, no. Hardly any of you would bend your face down to the plate and, and eat without utensils. and that. It, it, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is it, it takes... A, a physical uh, uh, agreement 
with a soulish desire. So in this passage, we see this evidence. It is not good for the soul. The soul is that middle part. Will, intellect, emotions, it's, it's, it's still invisible, okay? It's also made in the image of God. Your thought processes have the ability, based on Jesus Christ and the mind of Christ, to be like God. It was created that way. But that's why the Bible says in James that you receive the word engrafted, whereby you may save your soul. So your spirit man gets, gets completely made alive and is completely like God, missing nothing. Everything's complete in your spirit man. The other part of you that's invisible largely invisible, is that, is that soulish part where will, intellect, and emotions take place. So here's what he's talking about. He says it's good for the soul, or it's not good for the soul, to be without knowledge. This is not your ability to, to, to intellectually process for everyone else. This is what your insides do. This is what you think about and how you think. No one but you and God really knows this unless you let it come out. Okay, so he says it's not good for the soul to be without knowledge. Here's what happens. As we process living, our spirit man oftentimes will say to us, don't do that. Our flesh guy says, oh, what's it matter? God will forgive us anyway. And our soul guy makes the deciding vote. Now, that's a simplistic way for us to process this, but that's what it says. So your soul has to have enough experiential and revelatory knowledge for it to make decisions in line with your spirit. It really is a choice, okay? And, and probably over the last three or four years as we've gone through things in this country and really in the world that, that nobody alive has ever been through before, we found that our soul at times was lacking knowledge. Here's how we know that. It's because we didn't act like Christians at times. We didn't act what we knew we had been saved into. We had excessive and in some cases explosive evidences of anger. Your flesh is not the only thing in you that gets angry. Your flesh is what gives physical attributes to your anger. My wife and I were talking on the, the, the stage last week, and I said something, whispered something to her, and as I was whispering, I'd see her face, and she frowned. And I went, try not to let your face change. <laughs> you know, and we were talking. And so then as we were dealing with whatever, I don't even remember what we were dealing with, she then whispered something to me about 30 minutes later as we're getting ready, and she whispered, and my face changed. And she says, try not to let your face change. <laughs> okay, here's the point. We don't hide the decisions that our soul makes as well as we think we do. Almost everybody in here can look and recognize when somebody is frustrated and or angry. And what the Bible is telling us is it's not good when the soul doesn't have knowledge. When we don't have a recognition that the Spirit of God in us has the ability to help control us by the decisions that our soul makes. Are we together? Because if you're not, if you're not getting this, you'll just say, well, that's just the way it is. And here's how you'll talk. They 
or that situation made me mad. Please understand with me, emotions, while they can be thrust upon you, are a choice when they come out of you. Now, you shouldn't be a robot, okay? But the Bible does say, be angry, yet sin not, okay? Evidently, it's possible. <laughs> you say, well, that isn't what that means. It always frustrates me when somebody has to tell me what God meant when he said it. Be angry and sin not. Okay, if, if we can do just the simplicity of what he says there, we don't have to come up with Greek, Hebrew, and, and, and $12 translation interpretations to figure out what that means. It means be angry, it's okay, but don't sin. You can be angry about the circumstance you're in. But when that anger turns into a recognizable fleshly activity where you no longer act like Christ, that's the point. And he who sins, this is the second half of, of, of verse 2, hastens with his feet. Notice that without knowledge, evidently your feet will run quickly into the emotional impact of your soul's choices. They'll run quickly into the emotional impact of your souls. All right, verse 3. The foolishness of a man twists his ways. Now, this is easy to see in other people because you'll look at them and you'll say, oh boy, every time I look at them, it seems like they're going the wrong direction. Don't, don't raise your hand, but do you all recognize that in other people? Do you have an easier time recognizing foolishness? Well, let's, let's identify this for just a second. Oftentimes, foolishness in a human way is anything that doesn't seem normal to us. Okay? It doesn't seem normal to us. But our normal is a product of our thinking, generally speaking, and our ways, our upbringing, our environment. So our normal is just what we say it is. And so then we look from our normal and we say, somebody should be, are you ready? More like me. Now, if your soul is devoid of knowledge, you'll think it will be a good idea for people to be more like you. Yet the goal is to be like Christ. Foolish man twists his way and his heart frets, frets against the Lord. Now, I know that probably you've never done this, but it's possible that you've come close. Where in your heart you've wondered, fretted, worried why God hasn't done what you've asked him to do. That's, let, let's not look at everybody else and say, <clears throat> when they ask for something, right? You know, when lotteries first came out, I was in, in Imperial at the church there. And, and uh, a great number of Christians were pretty sure that, you know, God was going to help them win the lottery. And so they would come by for prayer requests about winning the lottery. It was always amazing to me. I always considered that foolish. You know, and that's when it started. And you've heard me say it here for all these years. Just give me your dollar and I'll give you 50 cents and we'll do it all day long. Because that's the most that the lottery will give out. And you say, well, what about those people? You understand that we play life on a different playing field than the one the world creates. Right? The world is playing a different life game than we are. 
The world's life game is measured by accomplishments that they say should impress us. Tracy and I, several years ago, were invited to um, the Billy Graham Center by Samaritan's Purse, and we got to stay there. Well, it is in the town, Asheville, North Carolina, where the largest residential home in America ever built is Biltmore Mansion. 125 or 28,000 square feet, four or five stories, indoor swimming pool, and you just walk through a living room on each floor, you know, for the guests to have their own living room, libraries on every floor, and you think, who would do this? Who would build something like this? And who would think that would be a good idea? In the, in the 1900s, 1905, I think, is when it, was, when it was finished. Here's my point. That sometimes the game the world plays called life is measured by a completely different set of statistics than ours. And so we get to this place <clears throat> and we realize that when our heart, <clears throat> excuse me, when our heart frets against the Lord, the first thing we probably should do is figure out which set of circumstances or game rules are we judging by. I don't mind being comfortable, okay? I really don't. I think it's great to be comfortable. But there's some really odd scriptures in the Bible. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus starts a conversation that said it's hard for rich people to get into heaven, okay? And then Two verses later, it starts another conversation where the disciples says, say to him, hey, we gave up all these things to follow you. And then he says, Jesus said, yes, and in this age and the age to come, you'll have a hundred times more than that. What did he just say? He said, you gave up all the things that could, could cause you difficulty to follow me, and I'm going to give you a hundredfold of those things, houses, family. And, and I mean, if you go read it, it's kind of, it's kind of frightening. But then he says, with persecution. Here's my point. Oftentimes, the fretting that we have with God is actually a part of us not liking what he says comes with provision. Comes with the rules of the game. The whole church world today, or a good portion of the church world, argues about the, the reality of God's prosperity. Now, what we really want is for God to meet our needs above and beyond, and we promise we'll spend that money appropriately, but we don't want the persecution. We don't want the persecution. I've only pastored two churches in my ministry life. Both of them either were or became somewhat known for their resources. This church has a significant level of resources, which, by the way, we're not trying to hoard. And even when I say this, it just makes me nervous as I'll get out. But what we're trying to do is to find God's picture for what he would have us to do because we're actually willing to give. When I say things like that, people who have a different set of rules will come and say, well, you know what you ought to do with your money, right? And, and they don't, they don't understand how the whole thing works, but they get kind of nervous about it. Well, here's what happens. Our heart frets, 
right? Here's what it says, verse number three. And his heart frets against the Lord. It worries in opposition to God's plan. None of you signed up for life with persecution. And yet all of you who give up your life for Jesus Christ to follow him are promised it by God, along with the provision that he says might be a hundredfold of what you gave up. Do you see it? And what do we fret about? God, you need to make my life better. You know, and, and you know, it's just difficult. It's just difficult to process. Skip down, if you would, please, to verse number eight. It says, he who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. Do you see it? Again, we're talking about that middle voting part. When you get wisdom, wisdom is the, is the godly presentation or godly function of knowledge and action. When you are wise, it changes how you act. See, I, I, I have some people in my high school class that both ended up being engineers. And at one of our high school reunions, you know, 25, 35 years into high school time, they both worked for an uh, auto manufacturer. And so they took a, 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 a van from the corporate office. They were allowed to, to do that. And all the way from Michigan to here, it made noise. And the engineers argued back and forth about what the noise was. And they were sitting in the front seats. One of them was unmarried, and the wife of the second one, who was obviously married, was sitting in the back seat. And every time she got out, it's a long ways from Michigan to here, she would notice that one of the, one of the little rubber seal trim things that, that makes the door quiet when it goes shut, when they made it, they didn't put the little, little plastic thing that pokes in the hole. So it was just loose. And so when they got up to highway speed, the vibration and the wind made that thing flap. How many of you understand that you can be really, really smart and not exactly know that the application of that knowledge should make you live differently? You know, that, that's where a farmer and a piece of duct tape would have fixed that right now. Because that, that wisdom brings us to a place where it affects how we act. You love your own soul because that's the guy who's making the vote on how you behave. That's what Solomon was saying. He who keeps understanding will find good. Now, I love this because if you look it up in other translations and you see that, it literally means kind of to stumble upon. Wisdom can cause you to stumble upon. Spoke with our missionaries from Australia last Friday night, Saturday morning for them. They told us a story of one of the guys they're ministering to who used to be from South Africa. He took in, in South Africa, he was an onion farmer. Okay. And they had a terrible fire come through and it ruined all the, the onions. Okay. I, I don't know how to grow onions. You put them in the ground, you get an onion. I don't know, but they had a fire and it ruined them. Okay. So he said, Lord, what are we going to, they're subsistence farmers. If you don't have any onions, you don't get to eat. He said, Lord, what are you going to do? And he says that the Lord said to him, replant. And he says, but Lord, no one has any onion seed right now. He needed 40 
2.1 or 41.2 kilos of onion seeds to replant his deal. Okay? He calls up the seed people, the co-op guy, and says, um, we're, you know, it's this huge wildfire. And he says, we need these onion seeds. He says, I need 40. He says, I know you probably don't have any. He says, it just so happened that today or yesterday, a man came in with 42.1 kilos of onion seed that he didn't know what to do with. And he gave them to the co-op, to, co to the seed guy, to say, can you please figure out how to get rid of these? Now, it was too late in the season, kind of like some of the stuff we're having now where we're replanting corn and we need it not to freeze until January. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, right? You're looking at it going, oh, Lord God, let this be an unusual because we really need that. And in this case, they were, they were similar. But their, their onion crop came to maturity. And guess what? In all of South Africa, they were one of the few people who had onions. Guess what? The 10 acres of onions they were able to replant paid them better than what their whole onion crop would have paid before the fire. See, here's the thing. What God wants us to recognize is that you're, gonna find, you're literally going to stumble. You're going to trip over the good that God has established for you. Okay? But if all you're looking for is the death and destruction and complaint, you're going to hear in the main service today that if you leave your time with God, before you get the answer, you will have only dropped off your complaint. See, don't, don't, don't go into a time without knowledge here. Well, I'm going to go up and tell God, this is a terrible deal I'm going through. Don't leave yet. Don't leave yet. Because what he wants to do, you are a carrier of God's answer. See, a lot of times we think God's going to do something. Nope. He wrote it in his word and he put it in his presence. So it says here in verse 8, he who keeps understanding will find, and I, I, just, I just, you know, this is the Glenn Klein verse, but he'll literally stumble over the good. When you stay in God's presence long enough, you will carry your answer out of that time. Right? Right now, and you know, this is probably more for the main service, but some of you might need to hear it twice. Right now, many of you need to recognize that you are believers, not feelers. It doesn't make any difference how you feel right now. Be a believer. Right? You say, well, I don't see. That's okay. You're not a seer. You're a believer. Uh, an understanding, someone who continues to seek that or keep that understanding will find good. Okay? Look at verse number 10. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. Notice that he attached how you handle uh, a prosperity or provision luxury with your ability to be in rulership. Verse number 11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. This is so difficult. Because many of us have a picture of how God's word is, is supposed to work. And when it doesn't actually work that way, so in some cases, we're actually quick to anger. He's a man of discretion. Makes him slow to anger. And his glory is to overlook transgression. There is no great English word for glory 
in the fullness of how it's, it's, it's made in the Bible. So glory is not only the kind of the bright, amazing stuff about God, but it's also described as something that's heavy or weighty. Carrying glory as an expression of who you are in Christ is difficult because glory is heavy. It puts a demand on your spirit and your soul. God's glory puts a demand on your spirit and your soul. And it's kind of like, remember, uh, in, there were spots in the Old Testament where the spirit of God would come down in a cloud and it said he would come down and so that they weren't able to stand. You remember passages like that? They weren't under, able to stand because the glory of God is also weighty. Literally, that's how it's how it's defined. And so in this case, it says, and his glory. You understand how hard it is to overlook transgression. OK, remember, iniquity is likely the thought process that leads. So we don't know, always know how people think. But transgression is literally somebody stepping over the line. This is somebody who's done something. And so part of what he's trying to get us to see is that there's an, there's an extreme weight involved in carrying the glory of God that gives you the ability to ignore or overlook a transgression. It's not, it's not easy to live in that kind of expression because glory is weighty. Look at verse 16. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul. Are you seeing a theme yet in this particular chapter of Proverbs? He's continually bringing up the expression and understanding of the soul. Again, for us, very, very necessary to recognize that while our spirit man raises its hand and says, ooh, 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 let's do that God, right? I mean, they're so, our spirit man is so willing to follow after God. Our soul turns it into a conversation or an argument inside ourselves. Because serving God sometimes is harder than we think it is. And our spirit man's going, yeah, let's do that. But our soul is going, wait just a minute. Right? How many of you knew you were supposed to help somebody who needed your help, but the first thought that you had, the first soulish expression of that was, what are they going to do with the help? Are they not going to use that right? I told a minister the other day, they were asking me, you know, how to do that. I said, first of all, if you're trustworthy, don't tell other people that you're not. By saying, well, you don't have to give to me. Now, this is completely backwards because everybody wants to know, well, you can just give it like this. Now, if you're trustworthy, let your soul live there and say, you can trust me with what God calls you to give. See, when you give to this church, you may say, well, I don't like what they're doing with it. First of all, I'm not sure how many of you actually know exactly what's being done with that. Maybe the pastor makes too much money. You know, because honestly, somewhere in our background, somebody taught us that it's the leadership of the church to keep the pastor humble and poor by their expression. You know, don't, don't pay the pastor too much. And other things like that. It says, he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul. Again, the expression that God's trying to get us to understand is that that difficult decision maker inside of us has an invisible influence. And that influence has to vote every time an opportunity comes up. Verse 16 in the, in the second half, it says, but he who is careless 
careless, reckless, unrestrained. Let me point out something to you about carelessness or being unrestrained. Just because you know something does not mean it needs to be said. There is a carelessness, right? Okay. Let's see if I can let's see if I can explain this in a way that makes sense to you. When you see somebody who needs the answer that you already have, okay? If you know that God is not a respecter of individuals, why don't they have the answer? Do you understand the question? If God's spoken to you about it, and you know that's the answer, whatever that answer, why don't they have it? Okay, let me tell you something about how gracious God is. When there's an area of unwillingness in our hearts, God won't overload us with his presence or his glory so that it will crush us actually destroying what he's been trying to do. If we're unwilling, obedience-wise, to do those things, God oftentimes doesn't put that on an individual until the character is sufficient that they can carry it. Are y'all tracking with me? So the answer that you have may very well be because of your character, and the reason that someone else doesn't have it is because God is at work creating or developing or building their character. Here's how you can recognize that. It happens in your kids all the time. Your children are under a development. And, and if you're still living, okay, if you're, I don't care how old you are, God is still developing the character of your children. Even though at your age, you've got way more wisdom than they do. And in fact, you know what they need to do. Right? And, and you see it. And you go, wait a minute. Please understand that God develops the character in your children. This is the easiest way for me to see it. God develops a character in your children so they can carry the answers that God wants to give them. Does that make sense? So when you look at this, you say, he who is careless, he who is reckless, he who is without restraint. See, the boundaries of character will cause us to not operate in some things. Does that make sense? If you don't have the character to operate in it, God isn't likely going to just pour that out on you and say, let's see how well you fail. He's actually going to develop your character so that he can put on you the very answer that you need to life circumstances. Are we together? I know that that was a long explanation. He was careless or he who is without restraint, without boundaries. Come on, how many have ever seen your kids who wanted to buy, you know, in, in, in my day, it was when my kids were littler, they just started making fancy jeans. You know, jeans that just cost a crazy amount of money. And I'm thinking, ain't no way on God's green earth I'm paying that for those. And there were some special jeans that my boys always want. Oh, Dad, we got to have these. And I'm thinking, why do you have to have these? You know, and I'm pitching a fit. And I said, well, get the money. Here's what we pay, and I don't remember what it was. Let's say that we paid $9 for blue jeans. My kids are old. Okay? And a, a fancy pair costs 25 Okay? Now, today, $25 is not a big deal. $25 was a big deal back then. 
And so we would ask our children to get the in-between. But when they got the in-between, we would complain on how they spent the money. What's that? My numbers aren't good? Why? For today... Okay, well, whatever. See, whatever they were. See, $25 jeans were too, too expensive. So, so, you know, I don't know how old you are. How old are you? 47. So, my, my oldest child is just a couple years younger than you. And so, anyway, inflation hit between his birth and yours. But, but, <laughs> but, but, okay, you see what I'm saying? They've got to raise that money. Well, when they raise the money and they work hard, then we complain about how they spend it. When really how they spend it is the character development that God is putting them through so they can carry that character, character development into their future. See, that's, that's kind of this verse here. We need to remember that there are, are boundaries that we want to help and, and put in for ourselves as well as for the people that God has put in our lives. Verse 17, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. I, I was going to skip this one because I just don't like it. I mean, come on. Pity... Biblically, in the New Testament, is not something you're supposed to do. Right? You're supposed to have compassion, not sorry. And then this one says pity. And I'm just going, no, nah, I don't like it. And then it says, pity on the poor lends to the Lord. Here's what you don't realize. Maybe you did. I didn't realize it. When you have pity on the poor, you're actually loaning money to God. What's that mean? It means God's intent through us is to help people of lesser circumstances than us. I still don't like the verse when I understand it. I still don't, I still don't like it. And, and I'm thinking, man, the second half makes it tolerable. But I rarely keep them together, but we should. Because the second half says, and he will pay back what he has given. He, who's the he? They even capitalize it in many versions. So God will pay back. Very few of us, me, <laughs> I didn't expect God to pay me back for the gift that I gave to a poor person. In fact, I wanted to give to the poor person with the boundaries of the verse right before that. You know, your character demands that we do it. I just find it interesting that he, God, will pay back what he, the giver, has given. Just interesting. Can you imagine a king, likely the richest person on the planet, teaching his children this? You say, oh, they have it to give away. They have a responsibility that's bigger than ours as well as having a lot of money. Verse 18, chasten your son while there is still hope. Now pay attention, because biblically we have to recognize that God himself is their hope. People in the Old Testament believed that God would send a Messiah. Many of them died without ever seeing that Messiah, but they died in faith and hope that one was coming. 
This is like an eternal thing. It says, discipline your child. Here's the problem. We lose hope. We lose hope. And therefore, we don't discipline or chasten. Oh, well, whatever will be, will be. We get tired. And do not set your heart on his destruction. This one's really hard because sometimes what, what, what our children learn through the crash and burns that they have is really, really important. But what's he asking us to do? Not to set our heart. What happens here is this is another picture of a soulish expression where our soul, regardless of what we say and in some cases what we do, our soul has set itself on destruction. That happened so significantly after uh, 2001 and, and the, the, uh, uh, the extremists that, that bombed, the, that, that flew the airplane into, into the World Trade Center. Many Christians were ready to destroy Muslims. We set, some of us, set our hearts going, man, that would be a great glass skating rink over there and one bomb would accomplish it. We set our hearts on destruction. That wasn't God. And, you know, that's a big thing, but maybe we have some little things. I have a pastor I deal with. And a new church started in his town. He called me up and he says, what are we going to do? Another church is starting. I'm going, well, are there people in your town that don't go to church? He says, yeah, but what if they leave my church to go to his? Yeah, right? I mean, we struggle with that idea. That's been, I don't know, five, six, eight years ago or more. The church closed last week. Remember what? Was it Agabus, the prophet, or... One of the prophet guys, when, when they were going to discipline Jesus or something, or Paul, and he said, just leave it alone. If it's of God, you can't stop it. And if it's not, you can't keep it going. Just relax. Just relax. Verse 20. <clears throat> Listen to counsel and receive instruction. Again, we don't have a, a, a word that's as full as this one. But there are certain words in original languages that can mean hear what's happening and others can mean hear and obey or hear with, with, the, with the, the, the process or the intent of putting it into action. So it says, listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. You see that this instruction is given to you, not given to you so you can give it to somebody else. You're, you're the one having to receive the counsel. So that what? So that you can be wise in your latter days. I will tell you that anybody walking around here that has a bit of experience on them, they learned at least some of that based on what other people through God put in their life. Just the way it is. I mean, some of you are still acting like your mom or your dad because of something they put in, their li in your life. So you just need to process that. You just need to pro They're not all leaving because my preaching is bad. Their, their children are, are getting ready to take off. So. so anyway, it may be wise in your latter days. Look at verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction. Notice that they tie... The reverential respect and awe of who God is and how he operates, the fear of the Lord, leading to a life of righteousness or a life in him. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction. 
Biblical satisfaction comes from living under the boundaries of God's word, Christ's righteousness, all the things that we know. Notice it says, he will not be visited with evil. Now I know that you think that somehow the devil just picks on you and visits you with evil. But in most cases, the evil that we experience is either the expression of a sin-filled world with no hope outside of God or a consequence of our own choices. So you say, wait a minute, you mean that evil doesn't come? Okay, it says it's not going to come to you. God isn't putting evil on you to teach you. Evil isn't happening to you as a result of what God has for you. Evil is happening based on a sinful world or the consequences of that same sin, the, the, the sin that's in the world. And by the way, since it won't be visited with evil, it means that in most cases, evil has to be chosen. <laughs> I didn't think anybody would amen, but I thought I'd just leave opportunity. Evil has to be chosen. Okay, I'll move on. 27. Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will go astray from the words of knowledge. Notice that he compares your ability to walk in what you know to continuing to be exposed to words of instruction. When people stop listening to instructions, they'll actually stop living in the stuff they already have. People leave churches and in some cases leave Christianity. They leave what they know because they ceased listening to instruction. Do you see it? In Proverbs, awesome. Look at the first verse in chapter, chapter 20. It says, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Led astray. You say, is drinking against God's rules? Um, not exactly. You can certainly do it. But it's, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to recognize how that wine or that alcohol can make you a mocker. This is something you've got to process on the inside. Or strong drink as a brawler. Right? So it'll, it'll get you in a fight. I know I've heard some people have had that happen. So, you know. Not, not happened to me, but heard that some people have. Verse 3, it's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. My favorite verse in chapter 20. John Hagee uses this verse and he says it like this. He says, any jackass can kick down a barn, but it takes somebody with skill to build one. Here's what this verse says. Since any fool can start a quarrel, so anybody can argue over how the barn should be built, but it takes someone of knowledge, someone of wisdom to build one. That's his trend. I, I like him because it seems like he gets away with saying really interesting things in this huge church. And, and so I, I like him. Look at verse number five. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now pay attention. When God puts understanding in you it is indeed deep water 
But you need people, rather than going and offering to them, you need them to pull that out of you. You need to sense the draw that comes from people who want that wisdom. That'll help you from having an opinion about everybody and everything and needing to share it. Let people draw. Well, what if nobody asked? Just be quiet. God will send some folks to you. Amen? All right. So read, read forward. We'll get through um, 20 and 21 next week, I hope. But uh, let's stop here. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for teaching us by your word in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live, and you can watch sermon slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening.